going to ask you to go ahead and take a Bible if you have one and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, and we'll read that text in just a moment. But I do want to begin by reminding us of the purpose of Luke's Gospel. In Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Luke said, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely, for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke is writing to reinforce, to undergird, to substantiate the veracity of the Christian faith. He's writing to this man, Theophilus, actually writing to the whole church. Theophilus was probably his patron, the one who was supporting his undertaking in this task. But he's writing here to prove, to show that Christianity rests on a firm foundation. He is writing about the veracity of the Christian faith. And he did this by, as he says, accurately investigating and researching the facts from eyewitnesses and verified records. Of course, we know that the Christian faith rests upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christianity is the record of Jesus, uh, the record of Jesus in his, in his identity, in his teaching, in his, in his ministry. All of these things undergird, reinforce, substantiate the truth of the Christian faith. All of these things, his identity, his teaching, his ministry, all culminate in his death and resurrection. So in telling the story of Jesus, Luke must lay out who Jesus is. He must relate Jesus' own claims of his identity and then substantiate those claims through his teaching and through his many works. The things that Jesus said, the things that Jesus did, show who Jesus was and what he was about. In those first nine chapters of this gospel, Luke is simply trying to to answer that main question. Who is this Jesus? Now, we are familiar with the gospel because many of us have been Christians for a long time. Many of us have been reading our Bibles for a long time. We've been reading the gospels. We've been reading the gospel of Luke for a long time. So these stories are very familiar to us. If we think about reading them in the sense of, of never knowing who Jesus is, of never encountering his teaching, never seeing, witnessing his miracles, if you're just considering this man for the very first time, you're hearing his, his name and reading his story, you want to you say, well, who is this guy? And so Luke is, is answering that question in the first nine chapters. And the short answer to that question that he gives us is that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the king who is promised in the Old Testament by those Old Testament prophets. The one that God promised that he would send to his people to rescue them from their enemies, to rescue them from from the dangers of the world. The one who would establish his kingdom, a kingdom that, that parallels and even surpasses the glory of David's kingdom. A kingdom that would be characterized by justice and peace and goodness. So Jesus is rooted in the Old Testament. He is rooted in the prophecy. He is rooted in the Old Covenant. But at the same time, Jesus would fulfill his messianic ministry by inaugurating a new covenant. We saw this last week. That in this new covenant, Jesus would establish a new way of relating to God with new forms and new practices and new realities quite unlike the system of the old covenant. As we saw last week, Jesus said that he pours the new wine of the gospel into the new wineskins of the new covenant. 
And so like a master weaver, Luke is taking these two strands, the continuity, the, the connection with the Old Testament, but still the, the newness of the New Covenant, and he is weaving them together. Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament hopes and promises. But he is also the inaugurator of a new covenant. And it is Jesus' redefinition of the ideas and practices steeped in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament law, the Old Testament culture, that really provokes the opposition that he encounters from the religious leaders of the day. He is opposed by these people over and over again that we read throughout the Gospels, uh, and uh, uh, several groups we've been encountering the last few weeks. They really begin to pop up in chapter 5. The scribes and the Pharisees begin to oppose Jesus over the things that he is doing. And this opposition is important. It's important to understand, again, who Jesus is and what he was about. It's important to understand the storyline of the gospel because it is this opposition that will culminate in Jesus' death and resurrection. We're studying one of the tensions today that that Jesus and the and the Old Testament excuse me, the Pharisees and the scribes uh, encountered as they were as they were encountering Jesus. One of these tensions over the matter of the old covenant, the Old Testament law, and it was the issue of the Sabbath. What does Jesus do? With the Old Testament Sabbath. What does he do with the Old Testament law establishing the Sabbath? What does he do with the cultural norms that the Jews were practicing in that time with regard to the Sabbath day? How Jesus handles this Sabbath controversy. Actually, there's two here. How Jesus handles these Sabbath controversies help us understand, again, his ministry as the the Messiah and his identity as the Messiah. So let's look look at Luke chapter 6 beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 11. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence? which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, after looking around at them all, he said that he he said to him, the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So we have here two, uh, what are sometimes called by the scholars, Sabbath controversy stories, stories that relate a controversy between Jesus and his opponents over how to properly obey the Sabbath law regarding the Sabbath, or regarding the Old Testament law regarding the Sabbath. The first story involves Jesus' disciples eating grain in a grain field, and the scribes and Pharisees interpret that act as a violation of the law, the Old Testament law. The second story in verses 6 through 11 involves Jesus healing a man with a withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and that act of healing provoked the ire of the religious leaders. Both of these stories reveal that Jesus is the Messiah, 
And they point to the fact that Jesus came to fulfill the, the Sabbath laws of the Old Testament. I think we'll be able to see that as we work through both passages. So let's consider each one in turn, beginning in verses 1 through 5. Jesus' disciples eating grain on the Sabbath day. And we see that the story begins with the disciples and Jesus walking through a grain field on the Sabbath day. And along the way, they begin to pluck some of the heads of grains off the stalk. And they rub those grains in their hands together to remove the edible kernels from the, the worthless chaff. And then they ate those kernels. Uh, Matthew tells us in his gospel that the disciples did this because they were hungry. And the word that he uses there indicates more than just, you know, I'm feeling a little hungry. It's more famished. They were starving. And so they, they needed some food, and as they're walking through the grain field, they, put, they pick off some of the grains of the, of, of the, of the grain stalks, and they begin to eat those to, to nourish them. And so they are refreshed, they get nourishment, and they move along their way, no big deal. Except that it was a big deal to the Pharisees. The problem is not eating somebody else's grain. You might look at that and say, well, why are they, it's kind of like when I was a kid, we had a, orange trees in our yard, and we'd oftentimes have the neighbor kids who come over and just put, put, help themselves with the oranges, and they, they shouldn't really ask before they did that. But it, it wasn't really considerate for them to come and to take the oranges off our orange tree. It would have been nice for them to ask for permission. And we might be thinking, again, the, sort of the laws of, of private property might have been nice for them to ask the owner of the grain field. That's not really the problem here because the Old Testament permitted someone walking through a grain field picking off heads of grain to eat. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, the law says, If you go into your neighbor's standing grain... You may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So as long as you don't go and just har- harvest a lot of grain, you're fine. Eat a little bit, go walk through the grain field, eat a little bit, nourish yourself, sustain yourself, and then move along. The problem the Pharisees had was that this happened on the Sabbath day. We know probably that the Old Testament laws disallowed work to be done on the Sabbath day. The laws about working on the Sabbath are rooted in the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. We read one of those passages in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, where the law says, again, the fourth commandment, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your, ser- or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So God commanded his people to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It was a special day. Of the seven days in the week, the Sabbath was regarded as holy, as it was unique, it was separate. You worked on the first six days, did all your business the first six days, but the seventh day, you rested, you did no work at all. And the, reason, and the way that you would show that you were regarding the day as holy, the way that you would show that you were keeping it, was to not work. But the question comes up, what exactly constitutes work? How do we know that we're not working on the Sabbath day? And if you go through and read the Old Testament, the Old Testament doesn't really spell out what that work is. It just gives the command not to work. Now, there are a couple of examples that show what kind of work is prohibited. For example, in Exodus chapter 35, verse 3, You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. So you can't light a fire on the Sabbath day. Okay? We do have an incident recorded in Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 to 36, of a man who went to pick pick up sticks on the Sabbath day. This is what it says. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. 
They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, The man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. So evidently you're also not allowed to pick up sick on the Sabbath day. comes with quite a steep repercussion. Those are the only two things that are specifically prohibited as far as work in the Old Testament. Can't light a fire, you can't pick up sticks. Okay? Now let's put the pause button on that for a moment. And let's think about the Pharisees. The word Pharisee comes from a Hebrew word meaning to separate. The Pharisaic sect began, originated somewhere in the uh, 2nd century B.C. They were a group of Jews who were concerned about uh, what we would use the word secularization. They were concerned about Jews who were playing fast and loose with God's law once again. They wanted to separate themselves. They wanted to become holy in all that they did. They understood that in the Old Testament that the judgments of God came upon Israel for breaking the Old Testament law. So the way that they could avoid God's judgment again, the way that they could experience God's blessing, was to actually keep the law to its fullest extent. And so in an effort to honor God more faithfully, in order to receive God's blessings more bountifully, they emphasized a greater and even stricter obedience to the law. Now the law, as we said, forbade working on the Sabbath day, but it didn't explicitly dictate what that work was. It didn't exactly specify what constituted work. So the Pharisees developed their own definition. It's kind of like, to give it a, more, even a more modern example, the third commandment says, you shall not take the Lord your God in vain. The name of the Lord your God in vain, right? Don't misuse the name of the Lord. Okay? Well, how do I prevent myself, keep myself, from not using the name of the Lord? Well, one way is not to say the name at all. If I don't say the name of the Lord at all, I can't misuse the name of the Lord. So many Jews in the Old Testament era and in the New Testament era would not say the name Yahweh, the proper name for God, when they read the Old Testament scriptures, they would just simply say Adonai. And then there were some Jews in a later period who felt like even that was too risky. So many modern Jews today will not refer to God's name Yahweh. They will call God Hashem. And the idea, which means the name, the idea there is, is that if I don't use the name of God explicitly, I can't misuse it. I can obey the law by not saying the name of the law at all. And you can see, on the one hand, the heart behind it. I don't want to break the law. But at the same time, you can also see how they gravitated away from the spirit of the law. They emphasized the letter as opposed to the spirit. And so the same thing happens with these laws surrounding the Sabbath. The Pharisees began to develop their own traditions to define what work is. If we can specify clearly what work is, then we will know that we are not breaking the Sabbath law by not doing those things. And so the Pharisees developed 39 categories of work that were prohibited on the Sabbath, including such things as reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing food. So according to the Pharisaic tradition, according to the Pharisees' definition of work, the disciples had violated the Sabbath law in these four ways. By plucking grain, they were reaping. By rubbing the grains in their hands to separate the kernel from the chaff, they were threshing and winnowing. By eating the grain, the disciples had prepared food. Now the Pharisees saw themselves as the true and faithful interpreters of the law. And they had just witnessed Jesus' disciples violate their interpretation of the law. And so, 
they're going to hold not just the disciples accountable, but also Jesus accountable because they are his disciples. He should have taught them what the tradition was. He should have taught them how to follow and obey the law. He clearly is not a good teacher in their eyes because he has not reined them in from this, from breaking this Sabbath law. But instead of accepting their interpretation, Jesus defends himself by, and he defends his disciples by standing on the truth of Scripture. Look at verses 3 and 4. And Jesus answered, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave, gave it to those who were with him. Now he's pointing here to a, a story recorded for us in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. In that story, David and his men are on the run from Saul. They have arrived at the tabernacle, the, the shrine, the central shrine of worship. And the priest, Ahimelech, they are appealing to the priest for help. And the priest has nothing to give them. The only thing that he has he can give to them is the bread of the presence. Now, the bread of the presence was the sacred bread. If you go back and read Leviticus chapter 24, you find that the bread of the presence is the sacred bread that was placed on the golden table inside the holy place in the, in the tabernacle, and then later on the temple. The holy place is the, is the front room. The tabernacle uh, has two rooms, the, or the, the holy place, the front room, and the most holy place, which was restricted just for the presence of God alone. So in this holy place, the priest would, break, would bake 12 loaves of bread every Sabbath. They would put the bread on the table, leave it as an offering for the Lord, and then at the end of the week, they would be permitted to eat the bread in a holy place in a holy way. Well, David and his men come on a day when Ahimelech is, is about to take the bread off of the table and to replace it with new bread. It was bread that he should have eaten alone, him and the priests that were with him. But instead he gives this bread to David and his men and they eat. And they find nourishment from it. And once they are satisfied, once they are filled, then they go on their way. The problem is that David was not permitted to eat that bread. His men were not permitted to eat that bread because David and his men were not priests. This was not bread reserved for them. And so it appears that the law was broken. David transgressed the law. David and his men broke the law. But it seems that because the Scripture does not condemn David, Scripture does not condemn the men with him, Scripture does not condemn the priest who gave him the bread, that there are acceptable times when the law can and should be broken. And this is one of those times, David eating the bread. The, the, general, the law provides the general rule. But in this case, David's need for nourishment superseded the law. In fact, what we're getting to here, that the priest is doing is he's getting to the heart of the law, the heart of mercy, the heart of, the heart of grace. So Jesus here is, is justifying himself and justifying the disciples based upon that example. Scripture didn't condemn David for transgressing the law, for eating the bread at that time because of their needs. And so the disciples must not be condemned for transgressing the tradition of the Pharisees in their moment of need. In fact, the way that Jesus asked that question is a rhetorical question in verse 3. The way he asked, the way it's presented in the Greek language, expects a positive answer. It was not lawful for David to eat the bread. And yet he did, and he was not condemned. So if Scripture, which expresses God's will and authority, does not condemn David then certainly the man-made rules of the Pharisees cannot condemn Jesus' disciples. And it's at this point, once he gives this, this scripture lesson, this scriptural justification, 
that Jesus offers the punchline. He, he offers the overriding truth, the main point in verse 5. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus here is pointing to the fact that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is affirming his messianic identity. He is saying in this, I am, I am the Messiah. And as the Messiah, I am the true interpreter and the right arbiter of what the Sabbath is about and the laws surrounding the Sabbath. Now, if you notice in verse 5 that Jesus refers to himself there as Son of Man. The phrase Son of Man in Hebrew and Aramaic is the normal way of saying human being, right? We would just say a human being or, or a man, a person, a, someone who is part of mankind. So Jesus is just one, in one sense here just affirming his own humanity. He is a human being testifying to the, the full, the complete, the true humanity that he, he possessed at his incarnation. But the, the phrase Son of Man also has a more technical sense, a more precise sense. has messianic connotations, actually a messianic understanding that is rooted in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, we read one of Daniel's visions. And Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So this son of man figure has the appearance of a human being, Daniel says he sees someone who looks like a human being, has the form of a human being, and yet he is more than just a human being. In fact, he has a unique relationship with this figure called the Ancient of Days, a reference to God, pointing out his attribute of eternality, that God is, is from beginning to end. He is, he is eternal in both directions. He is everlasting to everlasting. And so the Ancient of Days, God, gives to this Son of Man, this Messiah figure, dominion and glory and a kingdom to rule the nations. And that kingdom, he says, is an everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed. So clearly this is pointing to the Messiah. And when God would send Messiah, this is, this is what would characterize him. He would establish a kingdom, a permanent kingdom, God's rightful kingdom that would never be destroyed, that would last forever. And so by calling himself the Son of Man in this passage and many others, Jesus is claiming to be the fulfillment of this passage in Daniel chapter 7. So if Jesus is the Messiah, and if he has come to establish a new kingdom defined by a new covenant, then he both fulfills the Sabbath and he determines how it should be observed. By claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath, here, Jesus is striking down the, the, the tradition of the Pharisees. Again, their tradition may have had a noble heart behind it at one point, but it obscured the spirit of the law. Jesus affirms that actually his disciples are the true followers of God, which really would have shucked the Pharisees. They thought they were honoring God. They thought they were the pious, faithful worshipers of God. But Jesus says, no, my disciples are the true followers of God. They are the ones who have honored God. They've been walking with Jesus. They've been walking in the freedom that Jesus provides, and so they are honoring God by walking with Jesus and walking in that freedom. At the same time, Jesus points to the fact that he has fulfilled the purpose of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given as a reminder 
of the fact that we are to remember the works of the Lord, that we are to rest from our labors. The word Sabbath in Hebrew literally means rest. So by walking with Jesus, the disciples here are resting in Jesus. God didn't give the Sabbath Sabbath to man to constrain the activity of man. God gave the Sabbath to man as a gift to bless them, to meet their needs. The disciples are experiencing then the true Sabbath blessing. They're experiencing true Sabbath rest by walking with Jesus, by attaching themselves to Jesus and to his messianic purpose. They are finding the rest and the peace. John, John really started us off well this morning with that passage from Numbers. Yeah, we do use that at the end of services many times, but it really is a pronouncement of God's peace, God's rest to us. Jesus came to bring peace. By walking with Jesus, the disciples were finding rest and peace in Christ. Only Jesus brings that. In fact, the reason why God ultimately gave the Sabbath to Israel was to point them to Christ. And in Christ, we have true Sabbath rest. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, we read this. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. So in declaring here that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus declares that the promised Sabbath rest has come. He is the Messiah who is setting his people free, setting them free from sin, setting them free from death, setting them free from extraneous traditions that bind them. He is giving them instead rest, calling them into a kingdom that is characterized by his rest. They are experiencing this rest now in a relationship with him, and they will experience that rest eternally because of the permanence and the benevolence of his reign over his people. So we think about what this means for us as new covenant people. We come to rest in Jesus. Is this not a needed message in this time? Even in the season of Corona, we need this message. We are so busy. We are busy beyond busy. And the Sabbath here is not Sunday. Many Christians have interpreted the fact that that Sunday is just simply the the new Sabbath. Now we we can follow the wisdom of the Old Testament law in that regard. Having a day of rest is a good physical thing. But the fulfillment of this passage is found in Jesus, not in a day. It's found in Christ. Jesus, as the Messiah, is building his kingdom, a kingdom characterized by rest. And he is calling people through the gospel to come and rest in him. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you what? I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you need rest this morning? Go to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Rest in Him. He says that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. He will take from you your heavy yoke. He will take from you your heavy burden, and He will give you rest. So when we bow our knee to King Jesus and we embrace his gospel, when we enter his kingdom through that gospel, we receive this Sabbath rest as part of our inheritance. Again, the Sabbath is not a day but a person. We rest in the Lord of the Sabbath who fulfilled this Sabbath law. So if you're struggling 
If you are weary, if you are sick of this world, if you are overwhelmed by your circumstances, the, the, the remedy is to come to Christ and to rest in Him. He satisfies. He gives you peace. He is the one who causes you to rest. Now, at this point in the story, what we have is really nothing more yet than a debate. It reminds me a lot of in chapter 5, when Jesus, when the, the friends brought the paralytic down to the house, right? And Jesus says, your, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are like, who are you to forgive sins? That belongs to God alone. In fact, who are you at all? And Jesus kind of exposes that and says, you know, the reason why, at this point, what's easier to do? To say that your sins are forgiven or to tell this man to get up and walk? And what he does is at that point, is this simply a debate? How do we know that you can actually forgive sins? So what does Jesus do? He tells the paralytic to stand up and walk. At this point, we're in the same kind of situation. Jesus has just said to them, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Sabbath rest. I am the, I'm the right, the, the, the true interpretation of the Sabbath. I am the rightful arbiter of the Sabbath laws. And at this point, it's just still a debate. It's still just a, 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 an argument. And so Jesus is about to prove, he's about to show his authority that he truly is indeed the Lord of the Sabbath. We know that by the next passage, by the next story, verses 6 through 11. As we see Luke notes in verse 6 that this, that this, this uh, uh, incident took place on another Sabbath. So it's not the same one, but on another Sabbath, a different Sabbath, something similar happened. Jesus says in verse 6, entered the synagogue, and he does what he typically does on the Sabbath day. Jesus, we've seen the pattern already in Luke. Jesus goes into the synagogue, he begins to teach. And as he is teaching, probably teaching the Old Testament scriptures, probably interpreting those in light of himself to show that he was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, declaring the good news that the kingdom of God had finally come, it is in the teaching of that that we also, Luke also notes for us who is there? At least some of the who is there, right? He notes some notable, pers- some notable persons in attendance. At first, he, he tells us in verse 6 that there is a man there whose right hand was withered. Only Luke, Luke the doctor, amazing. Only Luke tells us it's his right hand, which is, it seems to be kind of important. It's his right hand, and the hand is withered or atrophied. Again, we don't know if this was a birth defect. We don't know if this was caused by some kind of accident. But his hand was atrophied. He had no use of his right hand. The right hand in this ancient time was the dominant hand. I think most people are probably right-handed. I'm a lefty, so, I, you know. But that, I remember my grandmother saying when she was a, a kid, she couldn't write in school with her left hand. They made her write with her right hand. There's like sort of this, the word in Latin, sorry, the word etymology here. The word in Latin for left is sinister. People who were left-handed were thought to be, you know, evil. Something was wrong with them. The right hand was the dominant hand. So in this culture, this man is restricted in some way from working. He may have worked through his disability, but he wouldn't have been as efficient as he had both of his hands. So he was, he was troubled by this. It may have affected, affected his, his financial situation, his economic situation, may have also brought a, a certain sense of stigma. His livelihood may have been affected. But there's this man with the withered hand there in the synagogue. The second group of people that we're told about are, again, the scribes and the Pharisees, these recurring opponents of Jesus who kind of crop up in the gospel story. And by now we know that a conflict is brewing. The scribes and Pharisees have, have already accused Jesus of blasphemy. They have questioned his association with sinful people. 
They've condemned Jesus' disciples because of, of eating grain on the Sabbath day. So this rip, first of all, probably developed as a curiosity, turned into kind of keeping an eye on them, which is now turning into a, a burgeoning controversy, a burgeoning conflict between Jesus and these religious leaders. And so they're there. The, grip, the rift is growing. Uh, again, we notice that in chapter 5, or chapter, five yeah, chapter 5, that as the word about Jesus spread, the scribes and Pharisees became more curious about Jesus. And so they are here, no doubt, to, uh, it says, Luke says in verse 7, to watch him. But they're watching him with sinister motives. The word for watch here means to spy on. To watch out of the corner of one's eye, right? You know, when you do that, it's like you're kind of keeping an eye on something over there, looking for something bad to happen. They're expecting something bad to occur. They're watching him narrowly, watching him purposefully to catch him in the act of wrongdoing. Because when he does wrong, then they want to be able to accuse him and ultimately destroy his ministry. They are specifically watching in this case to see if he will heal on the Sabbath day. Now again, going back to sort of Pharisaic tradition, the Pharisees believe that the law permitted them to break the Sabbath, that is to do work on the Sabbath, in order to save a life. So if someone's life is at stake, you can break the law in that instance. But if a person is not in mortal danger, that is if their life is not at risk, then the good that would be done must wait until the Sabbath is over. And since Jesus was known for his works of healing, the scribes and the Pharisees were lying in wait to see if Jesus would heal on the Sabbath. Of course, if he does heal, if he does heal the man, that would violate their understanding of Sabbath law. They would accuse him of breaking the Sabbath and, again, begin the process of trying to destroy him and his ministry. But verse 8 tells us that Jesus knew their thoughts. He perceptively knew the thoughts of the scribes and Pharisees. He knew their position on this matter. He knew their motive. He knew why they had come. They're over hanging out in the corner. They're over keeping themselves kind of private, looking askance, trying to be a little surreptitious in what they're doing. Well, Jesus takes the bait. And he doesn't try to, like, avoid the, the problem here. He doesn't decide to wait until another time to, to heal the guy after the synagogue service when, when everybody's gone. Jesus calls the man up to the center of the room. He puts him in the public place so that everyone can see what's happening. They're hiding out on the periphery, but Jesus acts in public in full view of everyone, so there is absolutely no question of what he is doing. I find that interesting. So he calls the man up. He says, come and stand here. And the man stood up in the center of the room. And there then, before he heals the man, he challenges the audience. Again, particularly the scribes and the Pharisees. He says in verse 9, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy? So he's pressing them here on the true purpose of the Sabbath. And by the way he juxtaposes that question, good and harm, saving life or destroying it, he, he sees these as, as two separate categories in, in sort of binary terms. Either we do good or we do harm. Either we save life or we destroy it. There's no middle ground. To fail to do good is to do harm. To fail to save life is to destroy it. And so even though this man with the withered hand is in no mortal danger... Jesus sees that healing him is the right thing to do. Jesus came to save. He came to heal. He came to restore. And so for Jesus to fail to heal this man on this day in particular, which showed that he was not actually saving life, he was indeed destroying it. Now, I, I like, too, the fact that 
that we have a healing story here because because this man with the withered hand, once again, like many of the other sick and disabled that we've read about in the gospel, is a is an illustration of what we are spiritually. It's a representation of our spiritual condition. This man has a withered hand, but inwardly he is spiritually atrophied by sin, and by the power of sin, and by the curse of sin upon his life. Inwardly he is withering away towards death. He is suffering the effect of his spiritual disability. But Jesus is the Messiah. He has come to redeem. He has come to restore. He has come to break the power and curse of sin. He has come to heal what has been destroyed. He has come to save life, all of life, every aspect of life, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. This is what it means to be Lord of the Sabbath. And so He has come to bring this man rest. On the Sabbath day, this man will enter into his rest. He will enter into the, the peace and the blessing of God that God has for his people. So for Jesus to fail to heal this man on the Sabbath day would be the equivalent of destroying him and undermining his mission. Jesus isn't here trying to stir the pot. I mean, that's not the intention of it. Jesus here is doing his work as the Messiah. So Jesus then commands the man in verse 10, stretch out your hand, and the man did so, and his hand was restored. And interestingly enough to me, Normally Jesus lays his hand on somebody. Normally there's some kind of contact or some doing. Jesus doesn't do that here. He just simply speaks the word. Jesus does no work on the Sabbath. He is perfectly and faithfully keeping the law. The man also is not working. He is simply moving his hand. He is experiencing the full restoration of that power. We sang earlier, all hail the power of Jesus' name. All hail the power of Jesus. Jesus is saving. He is demonstrating his power. He is doing his redemptive work bringing healing to his man, to this man. So the man stretches out his hand. He demonstrates he has been healed. And so Jesus brings his restoration. Jesus did the good thing on the Sabbath. He saved life on the Sabbath, demonstrating that the Sabbath was given for the good of God's people. This man could not rest on the Sabbath because of his withered hand, but now, through his healing, he can truly experience God's rest. Jesus saved this man's life. He demonstrated that God had given the Sabbath for the preservation and salvation of life, not for sustaining men's laws and traditions. So he proved what he claims in verse 5. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now the healing of this man, I think, too, is an illustration of what Christ has, has not only come to do for this man, but what he has come to do for us. Because like the paralytic, like the demon-possessed man, like the woman with the fever, like the blind man, like the deaf man, we are all spiritually atrophied people. Jesus came to heal our spiritual disability. He came to restore our life. And it is this true life that allows us to rest in God. We experience God's rest through the life of Jesus. So part of what it means to walk with Jesus and part of what it means to experience the life of Christ in us is to know God's Sabbath rest. Again, while the full reality of that rest will come in eternity, we can know it now perfectly as we walk with Christ, as we live out the salvation that Jesus came to bring us. This is the promise. This is the reality of Jesus' ministry. And it, it could have happened for the scribes and Pharisees. They could have received it. If they had turned to him, 
But instead, we see that they became convinced in their own mind that Jesus was wrong. And it says in verse 11, they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. They entrenched themselves in their opposition. They could not accept what he came to do. So this will begin, Luke is foreshadowing for us, the ultimate end of Jesus, at least in the gospel, the crucifixion. Jesus will continue to face these controversies. He will continue to face this conflict. And one day, the Pharisees and scribes and the religious leaders will look like they have had the upper hand. They will arrest Jesus. They will put him on a cross. And they will think that his work is done. They have ultimately destroyed him. But we know the rest of the story. That was all part of the means of bringing our salvation. It was all part of our spiritual healing and our spiritual well-being. But our rest comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so the question stands before us this morning. Have we entered into that rest? Do you have peace with God this morning? Have you trusted in the sacrifice of Jesus to allow you to walk in that rest? Are you, as believers, are we walking in that peace that comes with a relationship with Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit in us? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then I, I want you to feel the weight of the burdens that you're carrying. I want you to feel the weight of your sin. I want you to feel the weight of the hard life that comes with walking apart from Christ. Are you struggling? Are you striving through life, harassed by your own sinfulness? By poor decisions, poor choices, the consequences of sinful actions. Know this, that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus came to bring you rest. He is calling you to come into his kingdom and receive that rest. He calls you simply to turn from your sins and to trust in him, to believe in the gospel. And if you're a Christian, the peace of God, the rest of God remains for us as an inheritance. Are you looking for peace and rest outside of Jesus? If you are, you're looking in the wrong place. He came to bring us rest. Let us walk with Him so that we might rest in Him both now and forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for our Sabbath rest. We thank You for Christ who is that rest. That though the seasons of physical rest are important, they are helpful, that we will truly rest from our labors when we are walking with Christ, when we are found in Him. He has done all that is necessary. The striving and the, the struggling has all been, been put to death, Lord. We, there's no need for us to strive and struggle anymore. We simply need to resign ourselves and trust in Jesus. And I pray this morning, Lord, for your people that they would know this rest, that they would walk in it, that they would, that they would, they would experience it, in its fullness. The peace of God, the rest of God that passes all understandings would be a reality for us. God, I pray for those this morning who may be here who are not Christians that they would feel the weight, the burden of their sinfulness, the hardness of the life that they are living, and they would find that you extend the invitation to come. Come, those who are weary. Come, those who are burdened. And they will find rest. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Pray that you'd help us to walk in it and to truly experience it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.